Praise God, brothers and sisters. Good morning to you. And today's text will come on the board. It is uh, Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Dear brothers and sisters, if you are sitting here with a peaceful mind this morning, praise God for it. But if you are sitting here with a burden, with anxiety, with a worry, I will tell you that God has good news for you. In reality, this life is full of needs and care. Current living is not only enjoying basic needs, but fulfilling various desires to keep us satisfied. Like progress in career, getting married, buying a house, so many things to progress in life. In this process, we are continuously struggle and tends to worry and become seriously anxious. Whether the things that you worry is reasonable or not, it has tremendously bad impact on your physical health, social relationships, and most importantly, in our intimate relationship with our Father God. You remember I shared my testimony how I became anxious over life, on money, on career, and I, I, lost, I lost the way and I lost my, uh, my relationship with my wife and my children. But thank God, I'm back. Jesus has shown me a better way. Research has shown that 8% of the things that people worry, they can have some sort of influence. What does it mean? 90% of the things we worry may not happen. May the things that we had in the past, we cannot have any influence over. Negative impacts of worrying. Now, worry means, in Greek, it means set apart, to tear apart, to divide or having a divide heart. The opposite meaning of worry is peace. So, when you worry, it is distracting the peace of mind, isn't it? In a spiritual understanding, worry causes distractive thoughts in your mind and it chokes the word of God. The, the peace of the word of God that you have in mind being swallowed by the worry and you become anxious, you become painful, sorrowful and fearful and it is anxiety. So what does Jesus say about worry? To save time, I'm not going to read the, the verses you can follow on the board. In the Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus teaches how to avoid worry. So this morning, I'm going to give you five reasons why we should not be worried. Why? Ask the children of God, believers should not worry. Point number one, we must not worry from verse 625, Matthew 625, we can trust the same God who gave us life to supply our daily needs. Who gave you life? And he has, on top of that, he has offered us eternal life. And you trusted him to give you eternal life. And he has given the breath in our lungs. He gives us an existence and he is the one to fill that existence. So us believers who have put our faith in Lord Jesus Christ, don't we trust him to provide our needs? Don't we trust him to deliver us from our worries? Point number two, chapter 6, verse 26. For God, we are more valuable than the birds in the air. And he is much more interested in taking care of our needs. Jesus says that even without working, birds are getting fed freely. So wouldn't it be more logical to think 
that God cares for us? We people who are made in his own image and Jesus gave his life on the cross. We are more precious. Point number three, why we should not worry is Matthew 6, 27 says, worrying is very ineffective. It cannot do anything at the end. The example is no matter how long, how much you worry, you cannot add any extra height to your stature. It cannot add extra dollar into your wallet. If it was, I will be worrying sitting down here the whole day. <laughs> right. Now, it cannot solve the problem of the end result of the specific thing that you are worrying now. It is only procrastination, waste of valuable time, and a disruption to our current focus on the things we have to do. Point number four, Matthew 6, 28 to 30. We must not worry according to Jesus. Worrying is illogical. And God will not ignore the needs of his children if we depend on him. The logical argument must be God makes the things in nature have such short lifespan, beautiful. The flowers, the grass, the forest, he makes them beautiful and maintain them. So do you think that he will not care for us? Will we be um, set aside to go die in hunger? No. Point number five. Matthew 6.31 teaches us we shouldn't be worrying over our daily needs. It is just a demonstration of lack of our faith in God and his provision and his, his faithfulness. Jesus mentioned, O ye of little faith, if you worry like Gentiles, What's the point? Now, a cross-reference for you to have a note. Psalm 84, 11. It says, the songwriter says, No good things does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Dear brothers and sisters, now, coming to the end of the message of Jesus, he gives us two steps to follow. If you follow these two steps, you can be worry-free. The first step, he said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does this mean? What does seek ye first the kingdom means? I have a few uh, reason outs for you. I think the first point is the entry point that you come to God asking forgiveness and receive the free gift of salvation and enter into the God's family. If you're sitting here today without Lord in your heart, without asking forgiveness for your sins and believing that Jesus paid your sins, you are not a child of God. You're not in the kingdom. But when you become a child of God, you receive his righteousness and you are entitled to a package. All his glorious riches and gifts are given to you. And you remember the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the love, joy, peace, plus, plus, plus. Can't remember everyone, but <laughs> <laughs> love, joy, peace, meekness, humbleness. What is it, James? So, <laughs> so we will have that peace in our mind because Holy Spirit is in, in you. So you, you can control your worry with the Spirit working in you. Point number B, I would say, um, seeking First, the kingdom of God means studying the word of God and understand the way of life that God recommends us. A life bringing glory to God so he can use you. 
for the advancement of the kingdom. Seek ye first means we reprioritize our spending habits to be able to live a godly life where our minds can be constantly focused on heavenly things. Jesus commanded this. Without distraction, not to be overburdened with worldly desires, possessions, but live a modest life. It means we totally depend on God to take care of our daily needs. And we come to him through prayer and supplication as he has commanded us. I'm, to close, I am bringing you my last text. It is from book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. I like the part which is, says, peace of God. I said to you, the opposite meaning for worry is peace. Brothers and sisters, for us the believers, when we bring our anxieties down to zero before God, we discover the peace of God with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are some references, if you are making notes. Look into Isaiah 26.3, John 14.27, Colossians 3.15 talk about God's peace in our lives. If the worry is the sickness, what is the prescription? What is the prescription if the worry is your sickness? It is prayer. And the second step that Jesus wants us to do is do not worry about tomorrow. Basically, do not worry about your future. What does this mean? He also means that there's no point of worrying about tomorrow because we have no control over tomorrow. Do you have? We don't have control. Who has the control about tomorrow? Lord has already seen our tomorrow. He's going to take care of it. So let's focus what we have to do today. Instead of worrying about tomorrow, we can focus our hearts on the things that we have to accomplish today. It doesn't mean that you don't need to plan your future strategically according to the will of God. I want to make you to make a note about it. Praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we can fully entrust our lives to, knowing that he already paid for our, for our lives on the cross. And I hope you will receive God's peace and bring your burden before God today. And God bless you all. Thanks, Sunil. You encourage. What a great reminder that, you know, we don't have to carry and hold the burden of our worries, but we can give them to Jesus and he has a way and he replaces that with his peace. What an amazing invitation to enter into his peace today. Next up, we've got Nikki. She's going to come up and share. I'm just going to pray for her as she does that. Father, we just thank you for your word again. We thank you for what Anil shared. Lord, would you... Um, sink that deep into our hearts and embed the roots that you would want rooted down, Lord, into us that it would change us. Father, I thank you for what Nick is prepared to share with us this morning. And God, would you anoint her words? Would you fill her with your spirit? And Lord, again, would we posture ourselves to be ready 
um, willing to listen and hear from you and be changed by you. In your precious name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Anil. Do you know my four-year-old came home from kindy this week singing a song, Do not be anxious for anything. <laughs> so when you were sharing that, it's just going around in my head. It's awesome. <laughs> so cool. Hey, it's a bit like a sermon smorgasbord this morning, isn't it? A little bit of everything. So Morena, my name is Nikki, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and it goes from chapters 5 to chapter 7 of Matthew. And Anil shared something from chapter 6, but this morning I want to take you back to the beginning of the sermon. So if you've got your Bibles open, flick back to Matthew chapter 5. And I've titled it this morning, But I Tell You, A Higher Standard. And, do you know, by way, a, a bit of backstory, there's some really cool backstory to Matthew 5 where we find this passage. And if, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount before, you'll know that the flow of the text actually mirrors the story in Exodus of God calling his Israelite people out of Egypt. And prior to Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 2, we've got the death of the innocents under Herod. And in Exodus, we read of the Passover being instituted. And then we move and we've got the account of Jesus, his baptism in Matthew 3, that lines up with the crossing of the Red Sea of the Israelites. And then there's Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. And there was the Israelites wandering around in the desert in the wilderness for 40 years. And then here in Matthew 5, when we pick up this morning, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he speaks to his people. And in Exodus, we read that Moses went up on a mountain, didn't he? And he gave, God spoke through Moses to his people. He gave him the law, and that includes the Ten Commandments. Can you picture the two mountains? There was Moses, God speaking through him. And here we have this morning, Jesus up on a mountain, the very person of God speaking to his people. And in Matthew 5, 1, we read the beginning of our text this morning. Seeing the multitude, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, who took the position of a rabbi, that's what they did back then. We stand to speak, they sat. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And you see, Jesus has got some key thoughts that he thinks it's high time that his new disciples understood. They were probably expecting some rousing speech. But instead, Jesus wants to outline to them what we know as his upside down kingdom. It's the closest thing we've got to a kingdom manifesto from God himself. And he, and he sets out these kingdom values and they were in fact what God intended from the very beginning. When he gave Moses the law on that mountain, Jesus uses this opportunity on this mountain to explain more fully what true citizens of the kingdom behave like, think like, act like, are like. And so he begins, Jesus, with what would have been really confronting and actually quite offensive to his listeners. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17. He says here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And if you skip down to verse 20, he goes on and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Jesus drops this massive truth bomb. He starts by saying, you know those people who you look at and think have got it all together? Those who are obeying that law of Moses fastidiously. The ones you think might have it all worked out. Well, actually, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs to be included in my kingdom. What the heck? How is that possible? They would have been thinking. And you see, what I think was happening here is something that I observed in my personal experience when I was at university. It's a few moons ago now. But in my experience, at university, there's two types of students you might come across. The first type is those who actually want to engage with the content and be shaped by it. They actually want to know and understand and to apply all that they can from every paper. They often sit in the front two rows and they've done all the readings and they've got all the questions and we used to call them the mature students. And then there was this other bunch of students and they came to university to get the piece of paper. I wouldn't necessarily say they just wanted to pass, but really they just wanted to, you know, get the piece of paper at the end and they wanted to enjoy the full breadth of university life. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one of those I was, but what Jesus is saying here is that the Pharisees had been selling people short. Rather than holding up a higher standard, they were in fact relaxing the requirements of the law and they were encouraging people to live a minimum requirements, just enough to pass kind of life. That's what the Pharisees were doing at that time. They'd built a culture that said, as long, we're going to try and live as close to the line, as close to the law as we can, without stepping over it. So long as you haven't actually murdered someone, you're okay. They were living with an attitude that said, how much sin can I indulge without actually being guilty of the law? And Jesus wants his followers to know that that's not the kingdom way. That kingdom righteousness is indeed a higher standard. It absolutely is. But that higher standard is in fact all about deeper obedience. See, the Pharisees were focused on bare minimum, kind of external conformity to the law. But Jesus was saying here, I want to draw your attention to the real heart of the kingdom. It's of critical importance. And it begins on the inside. It's a heart issue, not an external issue. The heart of the issue is the issue of our hearts, isn't it? And Jesus, in our passage here, in Matthew 5, he goes on to illustrate this point using the very law that the Pharisees were living by. And he starts in verse 21, and we've only got 10 minutes or five now, so we can't do a thorough teach as much as I would love to on all of the passages. But he uses a really cool pattern. He says, you've heard it said, da-da-da-da-da, but I tell you, da-da-da-da-da. And so let's look at a couple of them. Verse 21, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 33, you've heard it said that people long ago, two, two people long ago, don't break your oath, but I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. All you need to simply say is yes or no. And he goes on, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, it's pretty clear that Jesus is trying to get a point across, eh? He's using this pattern to make his point. The problem was the Jews were missing the point. So what really is Jesus trying to say here? I just want to focus really briefly on one of those to try and explain the pattern or unpack it a bit. See, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, in verse 21, do not murder. And that was true, wasn't it? That's what the law said, do not murder. This was one of the commands that God had given to his people to live by. Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment. Is Jesus saying that anger is wrong? No, he's not. Ephesians 4, 26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. You see, it's not anger that is wrong. It's what we do with it. Anger is a protection mechanism that we use when we're feeling under perceived threat of some kind, physical, emotional, whatever. And Jesus is saying here, it's not wrong to be angry. It's what you do with that anger. If you leave it unresolved, it's going to cause you problems. And what he's saying is, let's not just talk about murder That's the outward, external manifestation of something that's going on on the inside. Let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about the unresolved anger that resides there. Because you see, if we don't allow anger to descend into hate and contempt, which is where the text takes you, if you follow it on, there wouldn't be any murder at all. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. And he's saying here, the law was intended to be obeyed not just outwardly, but inwardly, right from the beginning. The Pharisees were teaching that as long as you hadn't murdered someone, you were all good. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what I've called you to. The standard I've called you to is one that examines your motives and lives right on the inside, not just on the outside. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, Jesus says, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to say that they don't matter. He came to say they absolutely do. And in fact, the intent of the law from the beginning was a much higher standard. A changed heart, not just changed behaviour. Do you know, I had this play out beautifully in my home this week. I was cooking dinner, come five o'clock, and my, my fabulous children decided it was time for a game of tag inside. Great fun, I'm all up for it. But they were cruising around, running, 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 and I was just like, oh, I'm trying to cook dinner. So I call them over and I say, hey guys, I love you having fun. Please could we walk inside? If you want to do running, outside is a great place for running. So I go back to cooking my dinner, and out of the corner of my eye, this is what I see from my four-year-old. <laughs> she wasn't technically running. She wasn't, I'll give her that. But it's external conformity, isn't it? How close can I get to being, you know, I'm still walking, mum. I'm not actually running. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Hey. And I wonder, 
What's your fast-walking moment with God right now? Because we all have them, don't we? And you know, when Jesus calls his disciples in Matthew 4, just prior to Matthew 5, obviously, he takes this opportunity atop a mountain to ensure that we know exactly what following him means. And I wonder if Jesus' message to us today, if we were on a mountain with him, could be paraphrased like this. You've heard it said, if you love others, if you give generously, if you gather with God's family, if you, you know, do all the right things, if you look the part, then you're okay. But I say to you, and Jesus says to us, my higher standard is deeper obedience, not bare minimum conformity. I want your whole heart. I want you all in. I want to change your heart, not just your behavior. I want to examine your motives, not just your deeds. Will you let him? I wonder how much of our following Jesus experience is consumed with external conformity to a set of rules and what Jesus really wants is transformed hearts. Perhaps it's time this morning that we took our hearts to Jesus for him to assess what's really in there, what's lurking beneath. Because I can't see it. None of us can see it. It's inside. And let me just finish quickly with this one thought. Do you know, when my children hurt each other, because they do, they're not perfect, (laughs) either with their hands or their words, I don't just ask them, to stop it and to begin caring for each other. I also take a moment with them and I ask them, what's going on in your heart that's causing you to behave like that in this moment? And then together we take that to the Lord and say, God, we need your help. And that's kind of what it's like because that's when you really begin to address the heart issues. It's not just what you see on the outside. It's what's going on inside. Because you see, Jesus isn't interested in making better people. He wants to make new people. And that takes only a miracle that he can do. It's not about try harder. It's only something he can do. And I wonder, will you let him do it in you today?